computer's online. Archiving 44K. Lockoff Radio. This is your host, Leno Sanic. Today we're joined by author, director, producer, you name it, Jim DiEugenio. Good evening, Len. Good evening, Mr. DiEugenio. What is new? Worth reporting. I would say that Robert Kennedy Jr. has been going on several shows talking about how the CIA are responsible for killing his uncle. And it's so refreshing to hear him lay out just this straight facts. You know, like he says, if they weren't hiding anything for 60 years, they would have no reason to not release records. And uh, have you heard him speaking? Yes. And, well, you can't miss him. He's all over the, you know, he's all over TV. He's all over uh, the Internet. He's all over the radio. He's getting a lot of attention. Yeah, but he was getting some pushback from some quacks, some real crazy people. I mean, they go out of their way to say that he's an anti-vaxxer when he's been an environmental lawyer for how many years? And my favorite quote is when he said, look, when I was trying to get mercury uh, out of the water, nobody called me anti-fish. But now I'm trying to get, you know, uh, poisons out of vaccines. And all of a sudden I'm an anti-vaxxer. It's just crazy. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. By the way, I have a friend whose daughter does this for a living. She's an epidemiologist, and uh, she's up in uh, Northern California. And so I asked her, I said, normally, how long does it take to get a vaccine through? And she said, a very fast one, a very fast review is four years. I said, they only took a year on this one. You know, she goes, yeah, I know. So that's that's really, 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 really exceptional when they do something like that. Because of all the political pressure, they hurried up everything, okay? And so this, you know, I mean, I believe, I, you know, what, what Bobby was saying, he was not really an anti-vaxxer. He was just saying that people should have the choice. That's what he was saying. And and so uh, but the whole political establishment was on this, you know, stop CV-19 thing, you know, and I, I really believe there's two epic subjects that I believe you could write two great books about. One would be the insurrection. All right. I don't believe there's been a book written about that 
that takes everything into consideration of how it really happened and why. I don't believe there's been one. I don't even believe the congressional report went as far as it should have gone with the Secret Service and the Pentagon. All right. So that's one. The other one would be this whole CV-19 thing, how that took place, where it started, why, okay, the failures that were at, at the very beginning, how it proliferated, you know. Well, all you have to see is how they treated Joe Rogan, how they tried to change, you know, they just went after yeah. him because he was having doctors on that was saying, okay, look, I'll give you three hours to talk about it. What's going on? And they want the soundbite. CNN's, if, if it isn't for Trump coming back, CNN will be just nothing. I mean, almost any... <laughs> no, no, you're, you're exactly right. Joe Rogan was like one of the only outlets that people who disagreed with the doctrinaire view and for and, and dr fauci that they were allowed to go on okay and I, I think bobby was on that one talking about intervectin all right i okay. ivermectin yeah mectin yeah i can pronounce it but anyway yeah but so many things but anyway um back to jfk stuff bobby kennedy is doing the rounds wasn't sure he was going to run uh, and uh, he is and he is saying to anybody that'll listen that he believes that the uh, CIA had a big role in murdering his uncle. And it's just so, like I said, so refreshing to hear that. And, and by the way, and by the way, he did not see if you take a look at his declaration speech in Boston, where he declared his candidacy, he didn't talk about it. All he said is that the things that he wants for the American public are the things that his father and uncle wanted for the American public, but their lives were cut short. That's as far as he went. But see, inevitably, when you go on these alternative media shows, which he had to, I know I went through this with Oliver, very difficult for Oliver to get booked to an MSM program. Same thing with Bobby. So he had to go around. He's, and, and once he gets on these alternative, that's one of the very first questions they ask. For the simple reason, nobody will ask it on the MSM, all right? And so he and he answered honestly. Uh, and uh, and by the way, I, I I know how this happened with him. We were at Oliver's one night, and he said that he was in the green room preparing to do a speech in New York. And then in the bookshelf was Jim Douglas's book. So he picked it up, and he read a few pages— and then when he got home, he ordered it. And when he finished a book, he called up Jim. And then if you recall, I believe it was at the 50th anniversary, Kim and Jim did an article called JFK's Quest for Peace in, of all places, the Rolling Stone, okay? Which, of course, we know Tim Weiner is now the big deal there, and we know how bad he is on this case, all right? And so that's how it came about, all right? That's how it came about. Right. Um, and, and it's really great, I believe, that he's not dodging the questions. OK, he's not avoiding the question. OK. And, and whenever Putty, somebody asks him, he he answers honestly. You know, it's a, it's a really great idea, I think, by him, you know, whether it helps him politically or not. You know, that's something, you know, that the polls will show. OK, but he's making headway. You know, and especially because Biden's such a weak candidate. 
You know, Biden's disapproval ratings are so, oh my God, they're like at 39%, okay, 40%, all right? And so well, I Bobby, hate to say this, but I don't even know if you can believe that. That even seems high. And with the revelations and exposés that came out this week about uh, the American justice and the FBI and how they just, there was a report about was there Russian collusion and did the FBI have, have the goods to go after Trump? And it's just a complete lambasting of the FBI. They said everything you reported Which one is that? Which one is that, Len? Yeah, the, the Durham report, it's called. Right, the Durham report. Basically, yeah, the FBI did it, you know, like an internal review of did they have enough goods to go on this? And they found out that basically Hillary Clinton's campaign fund put up a million dollars to have this, you know, steel dossier presented. And then everybody else ran with it. And, you know, comedians uh, like Jimmy Dore and that are just running with it. I mean, it's a total embarrassment that you can't believe anything. And almost... It almost <laughs> makes me want to uh, vote for Trump just to say, you know what, you were you were slandered, you know, like it's just unbelievable the lying going on. I'll find out. I'll get Raul to make some notes to links to this. But in every instance that anybody looked into, well, who was this guy or who was that or where did they get the money from? It's all fraud. It's all fraud and all lying. And uh, we know that about the Warren Commission. We know that about several things. I have very deep suspicions about 9-11 that we'll find out that it's a complete inside job and fraud with Cheney at the helm. I just can't get over how much uh, lying is going on. And when you think about CNN, I said earlier, like they're they're nothing. And then uh, Fox News without Tucker Carlson. And who would have thought anybody would be sticking up for Tucker? But, you know, once again... The uh, the fake news, especially in reporting on Ukraine and, you know, the way Biden went after Snowden and they have, you know, Julian Assange, Assange still in prison for reporting on criminal activity. Mm-hmm. And yet, as many memes go on, you you can find out all this, you know, phony shit from the FBI, but they won't give you uh, Epstein's client list. Right. Mm-hmm. So or Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah, well, no, but some people have got that. But, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how they they had, a, I think, an Aspen, a, a workshop where they say, well, if something happened where the Russians did this, how could we handle it? You know, and they were doing these scenarios where they would get all the uh, the mainstream media together. And, of course, sure enough, a month later, oh, you know, we knew we were ready for this. This is from the Russian playbook. It's Russian disinformation. You, you mm. just... I guess the scope of it amazes me. Well, anyway, I, I was I've been reading anything I can about that stuff, and also with uh, the you Twitter mean Russia files. Gate. Yeah, yeah, but mostly just the fraud of it. It's kind of like um, well, you, you know, you know, when I hear something, an interesting story. Everybody knows Robert Perry passed away a few years ago, the guy who founded Consortium News. Okay, uh, one of the I believe the stellar reporter. Of that era, you know, the 80s and 90s, okay, much more than Seymour Hersh, who we're going to talk about later. Before he passed on, he had his first stroke, and I, I called him up just to see how he was doing, and this is what we talked about. And I said to him, I said, you know, I can't believe how the MSM is piling on 
to this Russiagate thing. You know, it just doesn't seem to me to have the smell of truth around it. You know, I, I, I just I just don't understand, you know, why it's like a bandwagon effect. You know, and I said the only thing I can think of is that they were so humiliated by the fact that Trump won when the entire establishment was saying that he didn't have a chance in Hades of winning. You know, and if you remember, there were all those compilation videos on YouTube where every single major reporter plus Hollywood people like George Clooney were all laughing that Trump didn't have a chance in Hades of winning. You know, and they were getting like hundreds of thousands of views, you know, and I said, I, I think that's one of the reasons that they're piling on to this Russiagate thing to make it seem like they really weren't such dunces, you know, in predicting he was going to lose. The only if you remember back then, the only person I can recall. Of any stature who was warning that Trump was going to win was Michael Moore, okay? Um, he got on several shows and he said, look, I can tell you what's gonna happen. Come election day, all those voters in the Midwest and the Mideast who've been blown out of the economy are gonna give a middle finger to Washington and vote for Trump, which is what happened. Hillary Clinton lost the Rust Belt, okay? You know, and, and the thing is, you know, that Hillary is so despicable the more I look into her. It's one thing to think, well, she was an awful Secretary of State and the Clinton campaign, Clinton fund or uh, whatever they were called. They were going to get out all this money. The Clinton Foundation, and they, they sure shut that down as soon as he, uh, Trump won. That was like dust, you know, where'd all that money go? I don't know. Well, we lost. So, you know, you're not getting your money back. I mean... Oh, it's it's uh, yeah, it's something. Well, to say. It, it was her. She inherited the original plan from the Republicans. Isn't that the way it started? The whole thing about this RussiaGate thing. Yeah, you know, there were people in the Republican Party who want, did not want Trump, and they started this thing. Okay, and they decided that they couldn't stop Trump and then her it was turned over to the Democratic National Convention their lawyers okay but everybody knew that this was Hillary Clinton's idea to keep it going all right you know and then you hold, I'm sure you're aware of the whole download thing from the DNC yeah yeah and it uh it makes me wonder what that guy now that they said, oh, no, they looked into it and it was just a mm -hmm. robbery. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you know, that's that going to be another murder like Michael Hastings, too. You know, I, I'm convinced that was a download today. Seth. Seth Rich, was that his name? Yeah. What was his name? Yeah, Seth Rich. That was it. Yeah. OK. You know, so anyway. OK, let's uh, let's get back to JFK since. Robert Kennedy is so courageously uh, answered questions about it. And let's go to one of the people who is a real villain in this whole thing. We talked about Edward Epstein uh, about three or four weeks ago. Let's go to Seymour Hirsch. I wrote a two-part article on this guy. 
entitled Cy Hirsch Falls on His Face Again, Again, and Again. All right. I'm sure everybody is aware that Seymour Hirsch wrote a god-awful book on JFK, which was called The Dark Side of Camelot. That book was lambasted when it came out by the MSM of all people. And several reviewers called it more about the dark side of Seymour Hirsch. All right. Hirsch is back in the news because of his ideas about Nord Stream, the Nord Stream explosions. Okay. He does this every once in a while. He'll dream up this scoop to get himself into the media. And so I talk about that in the first part of my article. And I reference several articles that you can go to that don't accept his whole Baltops naval exercise as being the sine qua non of the Nord Stream explosions by Oliver Alexander, Russ Baker, and Renee Tevel. All right. What I did is I said, look, Seymour Hersh's last big story was the whole thing about the assassination of Osama bin Laden, all right, the man who was accused of masterminding 9-11. As we know from more than one source, including No Easy, the book No Easy Day, written by Matt Bissonette, who was one of the SEALs in on that operation by the movie Zero Dark Thirty, those two more or less conveyed the official story that the CIA had a very difficult time tracking down bin Laden. And they finally found him in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And they went ahead and they raided his home and they assassinated him and a couple of, of, of his bodyguards. All right. And what happened is that they buried his body in the Arabian Sea. They sunk his body there since that was part of Islamic tradition. The Pakistani government was very upset because they didn't know anything about what was happening. All right. They considered this a violation of their territory because Obama had decided not to consult with them for fear of a leak. They initiated a commission to investigate the episode. Now, Hirsch, Hirsch's ideas on this, he couldn't get this story published in the United States. He had been a contributing editor to The New Yorker. All right. Okay, but the editors there would not approve this story. So he went over to England and got it published in the London Review of Books, and then he published a short book, all right? His idea was that Obama's refusal to inform Pakistan, all right, was a, something of a cover story. Hirsch stated that in reality, Pakistani intelligence, ISI, had captured bin Laden in 2006 and kept him prisoner with help from Saudi Arabia. He was going to be their leverage against al-Qaeda. All right. In 2010, ISI agreed to sell him to America for increased military aid and a freer hand in Afghanistan. And they agreed to the staging of the raid by helicopter with Pakistani support. Okay. Forget about a firefight. The, the Navy SEALs were escorted to bin Laden's bedroom by an ISI officer. All right. The intelligence materials discovered in the compound were manufactured to provide evidence after the fact, and there was no at-sea burial. 
the body was so decimated by rifle fire that pieces of the corpse were thrown out over the Hindu Kush mountains during the return flight. Now, talk about being a wild story, all right? This story has been very strongly attacked by Max Fisher and the online zine Vox and by Peter Bergen, who was a pretty credible reporter on the Middle East on CNN, all right? Bergen, for example, said, the idea that the raid was staged is completely nonsense because he was, he was allowed to visit there. The whole compound was smashed with broken glass. Several areas of it were sprayed with bullet holes where the SEALs had fired at members of Bin Laden's entourage and family, or in one case, exchanged fire with one of his bodyguards. All right. So in other words, there was a firefight. And the idea that Pakistan was holding Bin Laden is betrayed by the traffic that was intercepted by NSA that night. The ISI officials were all bewildered. They had no clue that Bin Laden was there. Okay, so that was his last big one. I think that was in something like uh, uh, 2012 or something like that, or a little bit later, maybe a few years later. All right, now, Max Fisher ended his critique by noting some of the other outlandish ideas Hirsch had reported. Okay, Amer an American perspective attack on Iran, perhaps with a nuclear warhead, Hirsch said in 2011 that top military and special forces leaders were all members of the Knights of Malta, and some of them were Opus D. The Bush administration was training members of the anti-Iran group, MEK, in Nevada. That one was not discredited, but it was never confirmed either. And this is why he's had to publish his stuff either in England or on Substack. But as I say here, the discrediting of Seymour Hirsch for people in the know in the JFK case came much earlier than this. It came in around 1996 when Hirsch was working on his, his book, The Dark Side of Camelot, which turned out to be a, a hatchet job. What happened is that the powers that be in New York and Washington – that is the book publishing and governmental business, decided that they were going to take over the 30th anniversary. And so what they did is they first got Gerald Posner to write Case Closed. That was in 1993. And we know this from Jim Mars, who talked to Posner about this after a debate they had in Texas. All right. Bob Loomis... And Harold Evans approached Posner right after JFK came out. And they said, we want you to write a book for the 30th anniversary. And so he did. Okay. Thinking logically, Hirsch's book was the bookend to Posner's book. That this one was going to go ahead and go after JFK, the man, and his policies. Okay. In other words, it was going to be a smear job. And both people, both Posner and, and Hirsch, got massive media tours. And that was a dead giveaway as to what they were doing and who was behind it. 
But the problem is that Hirsch stumbled right out of the starting gate. I'm sure you're familiar with this story, Lynn. He encountered a guy by the name of Lex Cusack, who was a paralegal in a New York office firm founded by his father. He had met up, uh, Lex had met up with a woman named Nancy Green, who had approached him at the firm of Cusack and Stiles. Nancy laid out a claim to the Marilyn Monroe estate, which his father had been handling under a New York State uh, supervisor. David Samuels in The New Yorker postulated that that visit might have been the idea for Cusack, all right, to put together this whole claim that there was a trust worked out between Marilyn Monroe on the one side and her lawyer, Aaron Frosch, and on the other side that there was a meeting of the Kennedy people led by Joseph Kennedy. And so Cusack then sold these so-called trust documents to collectors for a dollar amount well into the seven figures, all right? The documents purported to outline a trust agreement for about $600,000 to be paid to Monroe's mother and her upkeeping in a, I think she was in a sanitarium in Florida, all right? In return, Monroe would keep quiet about her relationship with JFK and any mob figures she observed in his presence, all right? Hirsch was overjoyed when he found these papers. He waved them over his head at a restaurant, shouting, the Kennedys were the worst people. Hirsch had sold the TV rights to his book to ABC, and they had given him more money based on the documents. But when they did something that Hirsch did not do, they had them forensically examined. See, this is absolutely nuts that Hirsch and his publisher did not have these documents forensically examined because he had a big publisher. He got a big advance, okay? Reputedly, it was in the high six figures. He could have certainly afforded to have those documents examined by forensic experts, that is, experts in typography, experts in handwriting, okay? But he didn't. It seemed amazing to me that that, that that was allowed to go forth. So when ABC had them tested, they were exposed as being fraudulent. All right. Um, and by the way, it's not like Hirsch did not have warnings on this. All right. Uh, Greg Schreiner is a guy who runs a Maryland fan club out in North Hollywood. Uh, he told me the first time he saw those documents, he knew that that signature was not Marilyn Monroe's, you know, and it's even worse than that because Janet DeRosiers, who was the last living signee on the trust, when hers showed her the papers, he told her that's not my signature and I never met Marilyn Monroe. All right. And she warned, she formally warned Hirsch and his publisher that they were dealing with fraudulent documents. All right. And but Hirsch did what many of these people, these crazies in the Marilyn Monroe community. And by the way, I have no problem saying that because after having been exposed to these people, 
versus the work of what we've had on with Don McGovern, who I believe is one of the foremost experts in that field. These people are a little wacky, okay, in their beliefs about this stuff, all right? He called her a Kennedy apologist. Can you imagine that? This woman who was supposed to be the last living signee on these documents says that, no, that's not my signature, and he calls her a Kennedy apologist. That's crazy. But that shows you how over the edge these people are. All right. But here, here's something that's always, you know, really gotten to me. And this reveals a lot about Cy Hirsch. The typing corrections in the documents were made with a liftoff ribbon. You remember those, don't you, Len? Um, yeah. 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 It's, was was white, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. And and you stuck it in the typewriter, uh, and you made the correction. And in fact, this is so clear in the documents that they even showed up in the New Yorker article by David Samuels. You can see it plainly right there. See, that was not available in 1960. It was not sold until the 70s. So how could Hirsch? A guy who made a living out of his typewriter, how could he have missed something like that? You know? ABC bought the rights, and believe me, when this came out, they had custard pie all over their face because they had paid so much money for the book and then more money when the Dawkins were in. Peter Jennings clearly took this personally. I have no doubt about that today. All right. All right. He tried to say that, well, it's not really true that we bailed out Cy Hirsch on this. Well, that was exactly true. Okay. They did what Hirsch and his publishers should have done months earlier. All right. It was what they should have done. Okay. And they didn't do it. All right. All right. Now, especially in the light of DeRosier's. I mean, so in other words, what 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 ABC was about to do was to minimize the fact that their ace reporter was an easy mark, that he got taken for a ride. So when ABC did a show on this, Hirsch was only in the show for like maybe three minutes. They got him off and they went after Cusack. All right. Now, even though this blew up in their face, Jennings and ABC went through with their special based on this book, okay? And sure enough, there was another Hirsch-created custard pie awaiting them on the program, all right? What am I talking about? Hirsch had fallen for the ever-mutating stories of Judith Exner. Extra was somebody who by 1997, many people in the know suspected of being a, nothing but another liar in the ever-expanding field of liars, okay, all right, in the Kennedy field. Because she did something years after the church committee that went back on everything that she told the church committee. She now said for People magazine that 
she was carrying messages between JFK and Sam Giancana in Chicago. Now, that was really an eye-opener because, like I said, that's not what she told the church committee. But she had been paid for People magazine $100,000, the equivalent of about $100,000 today. All right. Turns out that Exner is another one of these people who told so many BS stories she couldn't keep them straight. For her, she indeed said that she carried messages back and forth between Kennedy and Giancana. She added that Bobby Kennedy was in on these secret communications. She said Bobby would tap her on the shoulder and say, are you still comfortable doing this? We want you to let us know if you're not. That's in Hirsch's book. So what happened is that they knew how weak this would look with no corroborating witness because RFK, who was the mafia's living nightmare, was now sending messages to his number one target, Sam Giancana, who he had surveillance on. Let me, let me say that again. Hirsch and Exner wanted us to believe that RFK was sending messages to Sam Giancana, his number one target, who he had surveillance on. And when I say that Bobby had surveillance on Sam Giancana, he had total surveillance on Sam Giancana. Okay, what do I mean by that? <coughs> he had FBI agents, number one, following him around on the golf course in the foursome right behind him. Sometimes they would knock their balls into, into his foursome just to make sure that Sam knew they were there. Okay? They had electronic bugs on every single meeting place that Giancana was known to be at in Chicago, which was four of them. One of them included Mr. Humphreys, okay, who was his fixer, all right, famous guy in the Chicago mob, all right. They had cars following him every day, everywhere he went. This included payphones. When Giancana went to a payphone, they would wait till he left and then run to the payphone to get the number he had just called. They had three cars parked at his house every night. All right? So we're supposed to believe that Bobby Kennedy is sending messages to a guy he has this kind of surveillance on, thus risking the fact that that is going to come back through Hoover and the FBI and burn him. See, this is how utterly stupid this stuff was, okay? So they knew that they had to have a backup witness. And so this backup witness, you know, is a guy named Martin Underwood, okay? Underwood was to appear on the Jennings program to back up Exner saying that somehow he was in Chicago and saw her meeting with Giancana at the subway station. Well, he backed out of the show. There was no explanation given. All right, it didn't come out until the next year. It came out in the final report of the ARB. Okay, because when Underwood was confronted with 
an attorney from the ARB, Jeremy Gunn, okay, quote, this is out of the report, denied that he followed Judith Campbell Lexner on a train and that he had no knowledge about her alleged role as a courier. Do you believe that? I mean, that, that's just devastating to Hirsch and ABC. It turned out under what was involved in more than one case of storytelling used by both Seymour Hirsch and Gus Russo. Uh, to be kind, they turned out to be rather dubious, and I'm being kind. I have the references in the article where you can find them in the ARB report. And there's one last point about this that's kind of shocking. Hirsch, our crack reporter, being paid all this money, you know, to do this hatchet job on Kennedy. Somehow, him and his research assistants, which I think included Gus Russo, missed a Larry King show from February of 1992 in which Exner was on. King asked her about any relationship with Bobby Kennedy. She replied with one word, none. King asked her to clarify that, and she said she probably met him once or twice at a political fundraiser or a party in Los Angeles, but that was it. So what you had here was Hirsch attaching one BS story, that is Exner's, okay, to another BS story, namely Underwood, okay, and ABC fell for that. They put it on the air. So here's my question. How bad is bad? If we were – if people on our side were ever to do something like that, we would be tarred and feathered, okay? We would be outcast into the, uh, uh, you know, Death Valley, all right? But these guys do it, and somehow nobody calls them out on it. What a disgrace, all right? Now, because Hirsch fell on his face – with the Cusack documents, that did not mean he was going to leave the subject of JFK and Marilyn Monroe off limits, not by a long shot. Okay, Hirsch was writing a hatchet job, and the Monroe field is full of that kind of material. All right, but even for, for the hatchet job, Hirsch was way out there. He said there were accounts of Marilyn Monroe being impregnated by Kennedy and having an abortion in Mexico. He actually printed that in his book, all right? Uh, the problem is that Monroe's gynecologist, Dr. Leon Cron, said that Marilyn suffered two miscarriages and one ectopic pregnancy, which she had to terminate. She never had an abortion. I got that from our expert, Don McGovern, okay? All right. Hirsch also said that Marilyn Monroe was seen at Hyannisport. <laughs> when I talked to our experts on this, Gary Vitago Robles and Don McGovern, they said, what? He said, look, today we have the President's Daily Calendar and two Marilyn Monroe day-to-day -day books, one by April Vivea and one by Carl Rolison. That story is not credible. All right. There isn't any backup for it at all. All right. Then there's this. Hirsch put this in his book. 
that Marilyn Monroe would call up President Kennedy at the White House, which much explicit talk of a sexual nature. That's in Hirsch's book. Well, okay. Kennedy installed a taping system in July of 1962. The first tapings are from July the 30th. Monroe passed on on August the 4th. There isn't a lot of space in there for all this hot sex talk, is there? All right. All right. Now, when I, re, when I ran these by Gary Vitaco Robles, the author of a three-volume biography of Monroe, he, he replied that all this struck him as pure fantasy. All right. And it, it is. Okay. All right. Now, why did Hirsch insist on using Exner and her dubious story about being a Washington, Chicago courier? which turned out to be a tall tale because he was intent on implicating the Kennedys in the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. All right. It, what, what Hirsch does in this part of his book is simply astonishing. Okay. Um, the church committee investigated this for months on end and they couldn't come up with any credible evidence that the Kennedys knew about it. So what he did is he relied on a person, Dick Bissell, who the committee did not believe. And when I say they didn't believe Dick Bissell, it was bipartisan. Both the Democrats and the Republicans didn't believe him. All right. For one example, Bissell was asked six times who called him from the White House to develop such a deadly mechanism. Six times he said he didn't remember. Somebody calls you from the White House about a Castro termination project and you don't recall who it was? You know, that's just not credible. So why did Bissell do this before the committee? Because in the CIA's internal report on the matter, it indicated that it was Bissell who initiated the project before Kennedy was elected. All right. In other words, there would be no need for any such call since Bissell had already enacted it. And that was a question the church committee asked Bissell about. All right. Now, Hirsch has to know this because he refers to the inspector general report in his book more than once. Bissell was practicing a cover your ass exercise, you know, and the committee did not buy it since they knew that he was lying. And Hirsch keeps this all hush hush. All right. And but he also wants us to believe Sam Halpern. OK, Halpern was one of the CIA's most prolific cover up artists on the Castro plots. OK, probably because he was assistant to William Harvey. All right. And Harvey continued the second phase of the plots with help from Ted Shackley and Johnny Rosselli. All right. Halpern did something pretty despicable. He used one dead man, Charles Ford, to blame the plots on another dead man, Bobby Kennedy. And again, Hirsch has no problem with that. Okay, well, David Talbot, Lisa Peace, and John Newman have all shown this to be a lie. Halpern was prevaricating on this as part of a cover-up. All right, all right, you know, Charles Ford, before he died, was interviewed 
by the church committee. And he said, no, I didn't do that stuff for Bobby Kennedy. I was never asked to, to and this is what Halpern was saying, that Charles Ford was working for Bobby Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy sent him all these places that contact mobsters to help kill Castro. Well, it turned out to be all BS. And the church committee found that out. That was declassified. And Ford's, uh, the affidavit was there. That he, no, he never did anything like that. All right. Now, the church committee had access to the IG report. The 145-page document concludes the CIA conducted the plots with no presidential approval. All right. Hirsch never quotes that part. All right. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? All right. That is just such irresponsible journalism. See, look, if the CIA could have found anything that would get them off the hook, if they could have found any trace of any presidential approval by anybody, by either Eisenhower, by Kennedy, or by Johnson, they would have put it in that report. All right. But the two writers of the report who spent months writing that report, interviewing many, many people, they couldn't find one single piece of evidence. All right. That said that they had presidential approval. All right. In fact, they found the opposite, that there was a, a cult of secrecy to keep this from both Kennedy and Johnson. All right. All right. Now, but see, but Hirsch. Besides that point, Hirsch also did the same thing with the famous article, The Confessions of Alan Dulles, which was published in Diplomatic History. Um, that was by a guy uh, named Vandenbroek. All right. And what he did is, through a really good piece of research, all right, he found out that Alan Dulles had kept the draft of a story he was going to write, okay? And he found it at the Princeton Library. And I'm sure we all know what this was. It's where Alan Dulles admitted that he didn't think the Bay of Pigs was going to succeed. But he felt that when the chips were down, Kennedy would cave and send in the Marines and the Essex aircraft carrier, which just happened to be out there in the Caribbean, rather than watch the Enterprise fail. Now, what's amazing of what Hirsch does with this, he never admits that in his book. What he says is that Vandenbroek buried the lead by putting in the thing about Bissell's assassination plots in the footnotes. <laughs> this story was nine years after the church committee report. The church committee exposed the Castro assassination plots nine years previous. It was front page news. It was on TV every night. Okay, so there was nothing that Vandenbroek had to bury. The important thing is that Dulles lied to JFK. 
about this. And this is the main reason, along, I think there were a couple of other things, like the plots to kill de Gaulle and the assassination of Lumumba. But this was one of the main reasons that Kennedy decided to fire Bissell, Dulles, and Cabell, was that they lied to him about the Bay of Pigs. All right, and in Hirsch's book, The Dark Side of Camelot, he never mentions this stuff. Okay, he never, it, to him, it was sort of like Dulles, Bissell, and Cabell's happened to just leave the CIA. No, that's not what happened. <coughs> what, the main guy pushing for the firing of these people was Bobby Kennedy. All right, and he went to his father. Joe Kennedy. And Joe Kennedy said that, yes, when I served on the uh, civilian oversight board for the CIA, me and uh, a couple of my friends, all right, David Bruce and Robert Lovett, we tried to get Alan Dulles fired, okay, because we thought he was running roughshod. And so he, re he said, Bruce actually wrote a report, the Bruce Lovett report on this. And Bobby Kennedy found that report. And he called in Robert Lovett, okay, to see his brother. All right. And Lovett said, yeah, him and Bruce wanted to fire Alan Dulles because we thought that he was simply out of control. What he was doing in the third world was simply irresponsible, you know, and we couldn't do it because of his brother, because he had Foster Dulles there, who was best of friends with Eisenhower. OK, but he said, you now have the perfect opportunity to fire Alan Dulles. And he urged him to go ahead and do it, which he did. All right. And see, Hirsch doesn't tell you any of that. All right. But not only did Kennedy fire those guys, he reduced the budget of the CIA by 20 percent. And through Fletcher Prouty, we know about the NSAMs that came out. It was what, 55, 57 and 58. Weren't those the big three uh, limiting the operations of the CIA? Turning I think them they were in order, 55, 56 and 57. All right. OK, thanks. All right. Um, so. Hirsch, you know. What Hirsch wants to do here, what he wanted to do, was limit any antagonism between the CIA and JFK, which you cannot do. All right. You simply can't do that. All right. Uh, so. Other things that I went through here, which I've gone through before, were the whole thing about we should talk about that a minute. The whole West Virginia primary and Sam Giancana and the Chicago, the Chicago uh, election of 1960 and the supposed Giancana help. Because you, I'm sure you're aware of this. They're going to make a movie about this. Did you read that? Yeah, I read something about a new movie being made. And, but as soon as it said mob and gangsters and mobsters, I just kind of glossed over it. Yeah, well, it turns out that it's going to have uh, Al Pacino and John Travolta in it. So this is going to be, I think, a rerun 
of this whole BS about Giancana, okay, uh, and the double cross of the election, etc. All right, which I, I've exposed many times as being utter BS. I'm going to do another article about it, though, in order to uh, uh, to try and attack that movie before it comes out. All right, as Gary Willis, who was no big fan of Kennedy, wrote in his blistering review of The Dark Side of Camelot, why can no one get their story straight about this uh, heist of the election? And he went through it, and he says, in Double Cross, the agreement was set up by Joe Kennedy calling Giancana directly. According to Exner, it was she who was the messenger. As Wills pointed out, for Hirsch, it was done through a mob lawyer, Robert McDonald, who set up a meeting with the since deceased named William Tohey. Okay, But as Wills also pointed out, according to Tina Sinatra, the connection was to her father. Rob, rummaging through all this, Gary Wills wrote, was there anybody in America who was not involved in this alleged connection between the Kennedys and Giancana? All right. And I conclude here, the reason no one can get it right is because as with Mr. Underwood and Exner, it didn't happen. Okay. Double Cross is a novel. The idea that Joe Kennedy needed help to win the election in his poorest state as West Virginia is ridiculous, or that Richard Daly would not be enough to secure Chicago. You know, it's all as absurd as the multimillionaire Joe Kennedy wanted to be a bootlegger, when in fact he made tens of millions in the movie business, real estate, and stocks, so much that he bought the merchandise mart in Chicago. Well, I, ha I have to quote Gary Wills in his concluding statement on Hirsch's book. It is an astonishing spectacle, this book. In his mad zeal to destroy Camelot, to raise it down, dance on the rubble, and so salt on the ground where it stood, Hirsch has, with precision and method, disassembled and obliterated his own career and reputation. I couldn't do any better than that. So I uh, so I, I used that for part one. I'll talk about part two next time. Let me get to some questions. All right. Um, Barbara, April the 20th. In talking about my Epstein show, she says, the record Jim was speaking of was in conjunction with the book, The Scavengers and Critics of the Warren Commission by Richard Warren Lewis, based on Larry Schiller's investigation. The Capitol record is available on YouTube. I didn't know that, okay? Dennis Morissette also has it on his channel. It is entitled The Controversy, okay? All right, 19, the, the, the Death and the Warren Report, 1967, okay? So that, if you want to check out that album, which Epstein is on, go ahead and take a look at it. It's on YouTube, according to Barbara. All right, and then she tells us, the second Oswald by Richard Popkin is available at the Internet Archive. That's a good comparison with Armstrong's book. And then what my people read as it's so short. That's a very good book that's very underrated. Richard Popkin is the second Oswald. 
Okay, Sylvia Sadow. Did Hoover have compromising information on Jerry Ford? What was the connection? Spectre had an intelligence job while in the military. Did that job continue? All right, two questions. I don't think he had anything on Ford. I think Ford was just a natural, you know, suck up who understood that this was a way to get ahead in Washington, you know, by ratting out the Warren Commission to um, to Hoover. All right. And he wanted to get his ticket punched. As for Spectre, I, you know, I yeah, he did have an intelligence job and in I think it was the Air Force. You know, and I don't know if that continued afterwards. That's a very interesting idea, though, which might be true. Terry Smart. I think you're showing an overabundance of caution concerning Epstein. Well, Len, I guess our Epstein show hit the nerve someplace, huh? All right. Something happened, you said. He publishes a book with a second shooter in the shadows. I remember the paperback cover. And then as his career takes off, he stumbles and fumbles at debates and soon pushes a lone gunman theory after his groundbreaking exposure of the Warren Commission and evidence of a second gunman. Something happens so that he gets jobs provided by Clay Felker, who you declare as agency. I don't think I actually said that. I think he was associated with them. All right. Connected. Something happened so that the MA student gets invited to all the right parties, meets a plethora of power figures. Angleton turns towards him through his prized orchid collection, as recounted in Epstein's legend book, an intimate moment not afforded any other reporter. I think it's clear Epstein was turned or either co-opted or bought as he spent the last 55 years pushing the party line. He could have continued as a hero to the conspiracy community, but it seems the other side gave him greater remuneration, or they simply made stronger arguments <coughs> that dissolved his inquest findings and convinced him of the truth. Sure they did. So I know you like to have things nailed down, but if it talks like a duck and walks like a duck, okay. Well, that's certainly one way you can look at Epstein. All right, for sure. I'm not going to argue with that. Keith Chester. What is your opinion of Garrison's later interest in the aerospace industry being an element of the JFK assassination? I think that's really, really interesting about the guys going to NASA, okay, that uh, Lou Ivon found out about. All right, that's a fascinating thing that Kerry um, Thornley only agreed to talk to one of Garrison's assistant DAs. Um, at NASA. Let me say that again. Carrie Thornley only agreed to talk to one of Garrison's uh, assistant DAs at NASA. Think about that. How the heck did somebody like Carrie Thornley get access to NASA? And I believe it was one one of his through one of his CIA assisted lawyers. OK, um, but that that is just mind boggling. And so Garrison, if you took a look at his library, which I got a glimpse of, 
he was very interested in the works of a guy named Seymour Millman. Okay. Seymour Millman was a very, very interesting and illustrious author on the rise of the millendary industrial complex. Okay. And how that happened and how they were allowed to get away with the rape of the American taxpayer. I think he wrote two or three books on this subject, and Garrison had all of them. All right. So, um, yes, I believe that uh, that's a very important element of one of the discoveries of Jim Garrison. So you're right about that, Keith. April 26th, Matt Snively. Okay from Windsor. I'm sure you've already heard or thought about this, but I wanted to point out another coincidence in the JFK case that I find fascinating. Just a few weeks ago, Tucker Carlson went on the air and called out the CIA on the cover-up in this case. He went so far as to say the CIA must be responsible for the assassination. A friend and I a friend and I were talking about him the next day, and I told him I felt that in a short time Tucker would be ruined in some way. He would no longer be a public figure. All of a sudden the network that has protected him for more than a decade has now fired him and spilled all his secrets in a smear campaign like no other. Suddenly the Murdoch family cares about the reputation of its cash cow. Fox producers are appearing on MSNBC and CNN to tell their stories, something that would have been unthinkable a few weeks ago. I don't believe there's any real coincidences in the JFK case. Carlson has become the latest person to accuse the CIA publicly, and with great swiftness, he is out and disgraced in ways I bet he never thought were really possible. I am not a fan of Tucker Carlson and believe he is one of the greatest purveyors of division and delusion in America. But it's amazing how quickly his downfall has come since his incredible, and I believe only somewhat misguided, accusation just a few short weeks ago. Thanks for all you do. You know, I have to say, <laughs> you know, I have to say that I think there's something to that. I'm not going to say there's everything to that. But I have to say that, you know, can it just be a coincidence? Okay. Can all that just be a coincidence? You know, that Tucker Carlson's world comes tumbling down a few weeks after he says the CIA killed JFK. Okay. And are covering it up. You know, you really wonder because his was the number one show on all cable TV. Something like 3.4 million viewers on the average. Nobody came close to him. Even on Fox, you know, but somehow Rupert Murdoch is willing to go ahead and ditch him. All right. Uh, because of some of the things he said about the insurrection. I don't know. You know, I'm glad we have listeners like this who are not afraid to push the envelope. All right. Hi, Jim. Oh, this is from Ed Curtin. Ed Curtin is a very good writer who has a very nice blog, okay, and is one of our best people on the JFK and RFK cases. Hi, Jim. Great work on that fraud, Cy Hirsch. 
Do you consider him CIA? I have long thought so. Well, see, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I, I will say this. It's very odd to me that Hirsch, for instance, would have lunch with Sam Halpern, who was in the CIA for 20 years, and swallow all of his stories, which turned out to be phony, okay, about Charles Ford and Bobby Kennedy. And he would never even lend an air of suspicion or skepticism to any of it when it all turned out to be wrong, you know? So that's puzzling, you know? Why would you do something like that? You know, what, what, you know, it really makes me wonder if that book was a put-up job. I think it actually was, all right? Um, Joseph Rowland. Hi, Jim. After reading the article about Gerald Posner. Um, okay, but I, uh, Martin Hay did a five-part article on Case Closed 30 years on. And it's the lead article on Kennedy's and King. And I thought it was very well done. And everybody should read that. And this is what Joseph Rowland is asking me about. All right. Uh, I become more convinced Oswald did not shoot Kennedy. But I'm curious if your opinion, who do you think shot Kennedy from the TSBD or at least placed the rifle there? Any of the workers having witnessed anyone unusual there that day? Is it possible that there were some undercover agents or the possible reps assassin who worked there? Or did the DPD just plant the rifle with the bullets? Thank you. All right. Everyone knows that Marion Baker was the policeman who ran up the stairs with Truly and supposedly encountered Oswald on the second floor at the soda machine. In my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, I think that story is questionable today. Why? Because on his first day affidavit, Baker never mentioned, never mentioned that in his first day affidavit, which Harold Weisberg had, and I read about in his book, Whitewash Too. Now, first, right on the face of it, that would be hard to believe that Baker would not write that in his first day affidavit. But what makes it even harder to believe is this. When he made out that witness statement, in that same room he was in, which was not a big room, Lee Harvey Oswald was sitting right in front of him. <laughs> now, you would think that if Baker had stuck a gun into Oswald's stomach a couple of hours before, and he was now making out his witness statement, that he would walk over and say, what's your name? I want to put your name in my affidavit, okay? Or just walk over and ask him, didn't I just encounter you on the second floor in front of the soda machine? That didn't happen. And believe me, the Warren Commission was aware of this, that this was a very serious problem. Because Alan Dulles and David Bellin, you know, they went, as they say, off the record something like four times during Baker's deposition. Now, in that first day affidavit, Baker does say that he did encounter somebody on either the third or fourth floor, except that description which he made of this guy did not match Oswald. 
Okay. So there's one person. There was also one of the witnesses. God, I can't remember his name. Okay. That said he saw somebody running out of the back of the Texas School Book Depository building. I can't, I can never remember that guy's name to save my life. But there's a couple of possibilities, you know. I think Jim Garrison in his book uh, had a chapter called Escape of the Assassins. And so those might have been the guys who planted the rifle and the shells. And I, I believe that they were planted. And in fact, I'm not even convinced there was anybody at that particular window. Might have been at the other end. Okay, at the other end was a better shot with more clearance of the tree. All right. But, you know, they might have been on the fifth floor. Who knows? So, you know, those are, I believe, two possibilities. All right. And uh, do I think the, DB, the DPD planted those? I don't think they planted the rifle and the bullets. About everything else, there's a distinct possibility, like the bag. Okay. The supposed bag. I don't think that would have stood up in court at all. All right. Richard Booth. Okay. I've got a question and I thought this is May the 12th. So we're getting all caught up. I've got a question. I thought I would ask since you're so well versed in this material. I read somewhere that Alan Dulles continued having regular meetings at Angleton's home after he was fired with Angleton in the position he was at, uh, counterintelligence SIG with total oversight and a need to know on all agency operations. This made Angleton the perfect person to have full knowledge of everything going on and thus the best person to be able to continue keeping Dulles in the loop. I'm wondering if you recall what book this was in. I don't remember. It could be Tom Mangold, David Martin, Jeff Morley, or Lisa Peace. I just don't remember where I read this, and I thought you might know. Uh, okay, that information is in the Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, and it wasn't at Angleton's house. It was Angleton would come over to Dulles's house, as w were the other top-level guys, you know, like, like Helms and Harvey and Shackley, okay, where Dulles had, as Talbot called it, like a <clears> – <throat> a government in exile that he was developing. And to top off that story, at Alan Dulles's funeral, which I believe was 1969, James Angleton carried his cremated ashes in an urn. Okay? That's why he was called No Knock Angleton, because he had full access to Dulles's office. He essentially ran counterintelligence like a fiefdom. Okay? All right, Lynn, that's it for the letters. We got all the letters cleaned up tonight. All right, very good. And I'll do the part two to Hirsch next time. All right, sure. All right, good to talk to you again, Jim. Okay, Lynn, nice to be here, all and right. we'll talk to you later. Okay, good night. Bye-bye.